Hello, hello. I am Karen Jean-François, and this is the Women in Data podcast, a podcast where every other week I interview some of the most inspiring women working in data. They discuss how data is used in various industries, share their knowledge and experience in the field, and equip you with tips to help you overcome challenges on your career and feel great. Let's get straight to it. I am joined today by Robin Sutara, Chief Data Officer at Microsoft UK. Having worked on helicopters in the US Army, passed the bar in multiple states and worked at Microsoft for over 20 years, not to mention her passion for triathlon, Robin is one of the most interesting and inspiring women I've had the pleasure to meet. In this conversation, she talks about how data as a field could be more accommodating to diverse backgrounds, skills and capabilities. You will hear about how Microsoft tackles the data skills gap, as well as the importance of diversity to break the bias. Another discussion point of this episode is continuous learning, which is absolutely critical to our field that moves at pace and has been a common theme in Robin's career. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the Women in Data podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you so much, Karen. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. This is an exciting conversation. So we are releasing this episode a bit before International Women's Day, but we both felt like we could be on theme anyways. Uh, and I'm really excited about talking with you about breaking the bias, but also about uh, your career and everything you, you're you doing in your role. Before we get into that, could I invite you to introduce yourself and maybe give a, a brief summary of who you are and your career? Yes, uh, thank you so much. So uh, Robin Sutara, I am the Chief Data Officer for Microsoft UK. Uh, I have been with Microsoft for a little over 22 years, so I feel like that's most of my life at this point. Um, I, I started at Microsoft sort of doing uh, what I would consider more technology roles. So originally hired to support Internet Explorer 5 on Windows 3.1. Uh, so definitely technical, sort of drove a technical team uh, helping end consumers solve technology technical issues. I moved on to uh, other roles, also technical in nature, supporting big enterprise customers, primarily in the automotive vertical for, for several years. Uh, and then I did a transition actually onto the business side of Microsoft. So took on several roles that allowed me to get more into the data space. So I managed a team of data analysts focused on uh, collecting customer and partner data to figure out how do we transform the way Microsoft does business. Uh, had an opportunity to work in sales and, and sort of uh, different sort of uh, roles. Uh, most recently, prior to this role, I was the chief operating officer for Azure Data Engineering, uh, a great opportunity to teach our engineering teams how to leverage data to make their business decisions. Uh, and so it was just a, a fabulous opportunity. Uh, about a year ago, I relocated from Redmond to the UK. Uh, so based now out of uh, central London and responsible for the entire UK subsidiary, helping our own organization become more data-driven. That sounds really exciting. And it feels like you've you've won so many different hats in your, in your career. So the amount of knowledge you must have accumulated and the different ways of working you you must have seen uh, it's mind-blowing but you said you've been at Microsoft for 22 years but you did not start at Microsoft and 
you actually moved to Microsoft because you were tired of being the only woman in the team. And so you moved from a different industry into tech where tech feels like quite male dominated, but it felt like this is where you wanted to go. So can you give us a bit of background on that? Uh, y- yes. So pre, pre-Microsoft, I was actually a soldier in the U.S. Army, uh, worked on Apache helicopters on the weapons and electrical systems. So definitely very male-dominated, male-oriented uh, environment. I was one woman out of a platoon of 35 people. And so I definitely gender biased toward the male opinion uh, when it came to sort of doing that work. So when I decided to get into technology, I really thought, what better opportunity to, to sort of translate some of this hardware experience I had? And could I translate that into uh, into more of the technology, the software space, where I felt like as an external looking in, I could see more of female representation across that industry. Uh, little did I know that when you got into the industry, it wasn't quite as well balanced as I thought it was as, a, as an external. But in the last two decades, we've just made significant progress in the amount of gender representation across the ecosystem, but still lots of opportunity for us to collaborate and make it better. I want to add to that, that especially in the last five, six years, we can definitely see, you know, all the organizations out there trying to promote diversity and even companies are really, really getting on board. So it's very refreshing to to see all that. But what I would like to, to do is maybe if we focus on what you've seen and how things have changed over time, how, how people can. So if you have someone who, who works in a very male dominated environment or who is about to join a company, if there are any red flags or also advices for companies to create a more diverse and inclusive environment for their employees. What would you say? Maybe let's say, let's start with the red flags. What would you say are the red flags for a non-inclusive work environment? And that doesn't have to be based on gender, you know, inclusivity is on everything. I, I think for me, a big red flag is when you even start the interview process. So early on, before you ever join an organization, how many people do you interact with that are not that are not the same as the person you spoke to previously, right? So if you're having multiple conversations across an organization, as you express interest in that organization, uh, a big red flag for me is if they're all of the same uh, background, all of the same formal education, all of the same training. Uh, You know, I've definitely had jobs where I teased that they were Uh, It was the good old boys club of the University of Wisconsin, right, which is one of the biggest database schools in the U.S. And so I was working with these groups that they were all from Wisconsin. They all had the same educational background. And and at some point, it's, you know, are we really fostering diverse environments when everybody has the same education, the same background, the same sort of experiences? Uh, it, It makes us very narrow in the capabilities that we can deliver as an organization. So for me, the very first red flag is, is does everybody appear to be of the same sort of mold or do you see during the interview process, during discussions across the organization or the component that you will come into, do you see a varying or a variety of, of, of people that, that you run into during those conversations? 
Yeah, and that definitely doesn't help for thinking outside of the box and innovation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you've mentioned all the teams that you've been working with and leading at Microsoft. How did you ensure, you know, that you were creating a, a diverse environment there? Yeah, so for me, I explicitly call out from the very beginning of the process. So when I'm trying to solicit new talent in the team, I'm I'm looking specifically for people that are very different for those that work for me today. I also try to make sure that uh, our interview loops show a, a good broad range of the diversity I have across the team uh, because you want people to come into the process and see someone that they can connect with, someone that's, that looks like them or comes from the same background, has the same ethnicity, the same gender, the same, but, but has some variety uh, uh, from their own experiences, their own background, their own uh, technical skills or capabilities. They bring a unique perspective. And so making sure that I'm uh, getting those candidates into the system uh, and, and then once they actually start to go through the process, can they feel a connection with my team and my organization? Yeah, this connection is very important. So when they say, you know, you need to have certain quotas of women or ethnic people in your team, uh, and I guess bigger companies have to achieve that. But while you have the issue of getting them through the door, getting them through the interviews and everything, but also making sure that they feel included in the team, in the company, and that they can relate to to what's going on and but they have their their voice there is very important. Otherwise, they're just going to leave. So I know I've had some some issues like that in the past where I felt like, okay, this is not where I belong and I don't feel comfortable in that company. And I guess finding my voice was, was very hard. Do you have any tips on how to how companies can make sure that once they've hired broader or more diverse set of skills and, and of people, how could they actually make sure that they maintain that and retain the employees? I think that's a wonderful point, right? You, you're absolutely right. It's not just getting new employees or diverse employees through the through the system and onto the team. There has to be that level of connection once they arrive. I, I know internal to Microsoft, we do many, many things to, to try to build those types of communities. Uh, we have very large employee resource groups that range everything from, uh, from race to ethnicity to family status to um, sexual orientation. We've tried to create all of these communities that span within the UK subsidiary as well as globally so that we can try to help people build those connections, particularly on smaller teams where you may not have someone directly on your own team that you can associate with, but how can we help expand your network across the thousands of employees? Uh, I know that's a unique position for Microsoft to be in. Not every company is going to have that many. So really, I think it does come down to the leadership and those within the organization, most of these things start as grassroots efforts, right? From someone in the organization saying, we need to better address single parents, or we need to better address women in technology. We need to better address Blacks in technology. And so how do we create the space and the freedom for organizations to create these communities and support them because they won't thrive on their own? And so making sure that you give time and support and capability and funding where necessary to make sure that these communities can grow and, and thrive and survive, I think is essential for any organization, regardless of size. Definitely. So when we're on the topic of diversity and inclusion, so there are 
with with COVID and also I guess it started about 10 years ago where you've had this rush of companies uh, getting more data strength centric and embracing data analytics and data science more, making it at the core of what they do. This has increased quite a lot. Now everybody's talking about the skills gap and how we can address that. I guess why I'm bringing this now while we're talking about diversity and inclusion is that it feels to me like there is kind of an imbalance between who we are trying to hire and who is on the market. So I've seen in the last couple of years, many people trying to transition from one industry, well, one field to data science or data analytics and data engineering as well, which is, um, which is getting bigger and bigger as a, as a field. But there was, uh, I recently read a survey, a research that run, that was run by the UK government and they found that 46% of businesses who are recruiting for roles that require hard data skills, so hands-on people, were struggling to find someone to fill the positions. And I'm thinking, yes, I can see that there is a gap, but there are also lots of people out there struggling to actually find a, a job that are very talented. And I was wondering if by us focusing on some specific skills of people who know already how to code or who everybody's talking about Python now, needing these Python skills and and everything. Are we limiting ourselves to hiring great data professionals? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, if any space could be more accommodating to diverse backgrounds and capabilities and skills, it would be data, right? We need to think beyond the traditional science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, right? We need to start thinking about the unique value in data science that things like linguists or social science backgrounds bring to to sort of that workforce. They're going to view problems and sort of approaches very, very differently than a traditional science, uh, you know, tech technology background. So how how you're exactly right. How do we start opening up the opportunities for those that have been less traditional sort of education and experiences to get into that space? And it requires the ecosystem opening up and sort of allowing those new viewpoints. I, I know every customer I talk to is just talking about the huge gap that they have in hiring. Uh, everyone has open roles in the data space. People have very, there's very little sort of pipeline coming in to apply for those. Everyone's sort of fighting for the same talent. So now is a great opportunity for us in data to really think about how do we open up the market? How do we get interest from these other backgrounds? Because the other thing is candidates often don't view themselves as a data professional or interested in data uh, because they view it as very uh, very technical or very scientific, uh, right? And they feel like I don't have the background or skills. And so I think it's on both sides that we need to open up the opportunities, but we also need to encourage those from dissimilar backgrounds to consider data uh, roles and data opportunities. I mean, I think I'm a prime example of someone who did not come up through a traditional engineering function into a data role. Um, so while my undergraduate studies was engineering, that was it. I was not an engineer by trade. Uh, I think the last program I used was Fortran or Ada. So I don't even know that people know what those languages are anymore, right? But so I do. <laughs> so, uh, so so yeah, I think um, bringing those diverse perspectives, the 
the perspective from business, the perspective from social backgrounds, uh, retail, financial services, industry perspective, uh, is just going to open up a whole capability for us to approach data problems differently, as well as give people an opportunity to think beyond the hardcore engineering that they have uh, expectations as a data profession. Yeah, and uh, definitely you're probably the best example of that. So from uh, working on helicopters to becoming a CDO of Microsoft, that uh, definitely that's a that's a big shift. <laughs> but so from while you were talking, I was thinking this is so true because you were talking about you know the fact that we would need people to be to talk to solve the business problems, and people thinking that. They might not be that technical, so maybe the role is not for them and we have to work from both perspectives. I remember when I started working, so maybe a, f- a couple of years in my in my career, everybody was talking about this unicorn um, data analyst. Now they're still talking about unicorns, but it feels like a bit less. Uh, unicorn data analysts who can code and build very strong models and there was no data scientists at the, at the time. Data analysts were the one building models, but can also talk to business and make themselves understood and solve all their business problems. And they were looking for that that exact person and desperate to find to find them. Now I'm thinking with other people are getting more interested in in our field. This is the opportunity to actually build that profile because. Hard skills are learnable, uh, and my opinion is that they're easier to learn than, you know, all the soft skills and being able to communicate clearly and and be a bit more commercial. So I I feel like we're really trying to hire this very technical person from the start, and maybe disregarding all the ones that would be a bit less technical could do the job and and learn on the job. I think that that unicorn uh, is really interesting. So, so I think most people know that the chief data officer role itself has only existed for about 10 years. Uh, and it's very interesting. Every conversation I have with a CDO at another organization, our jobs are all different, uh, right? And so it can be anything from the technology platform to the analytics platform, to the data science function, to the data analyst function, to the visualization, to the, uh, right? I mean, it's just, I, I, it's almost gotten to the point where people hear the word data and they feel like, oh, I, ha- I should be able to bring in one data analyst, engineer, scientist, and they should be able to handle all of that. I should be able to bring in a, a CDO and they'll be able to cover all of those aspects and manage have experience across all of those uh, different pillars, but that's that's absolutely not the case. And so, I, I do know that you know Microsoft has definitely taken the perspective of um, we know that there's going to be a technology skills gap for data uh, right across all of the facets. If you think about the distinct value proposition that a data analyst brings versus a data engineer versus a data science, and so for us, it really is how do we create platforms platform and tools um, that really focus on low code or no code. So you don't have to have that traditional 
Python experience. Can you drag and drop in Windows or, or a Mac? Then you can, you know, create the pipelines and, and generate and create models. So I, I think as we see more and more technology empowering um, that ability to not have that hard coding background and experience, that is going to open up a whole new world of, of diverse viewpoints and diverse talent that I think that we can bring into the pipeline. So now that the issue will be encouraging people that have not grown up in a traditional science background to, to take advantage of, of those tools and those capabilities uh, and that technology that's being designed to encourage them to apply it into the market and into the pipeline. Yeah, that's both exciting and scary at the same time. I'm thinking, ooh, <laughs> what are my skills going to be like in the future? It's funny how things shift so fast and we, we have to adapt. But yeah, so I was thinking because you have these big shifts happening and you mentioned the focus on low code or or no code. And we just said things are moving fast. So there is in our field, we have to learn all the time. So we have to be maybe not learn it all, but continuously developing, continuously learning. And this is something that from your background, I can see you doing it. So on top of having started with helicopters, you've also passed the bar in two states. So you are actually a lawyer. And I am really curious to hear, you know, how this is impacting your work, but also how do you actually make space? How do you shift your mindset to really want to acquire new knowledge, which is very important to our field, and also make space in your life and your work to be able to to learn things while working, having a family and, and living a life as a person, really? It's definitely a balance. And I would say at different points in my career, I've shifted focus on different aspects. I mean, when my children were much younger, definitely spent more time on family versus work or, or you know, incremental training. I did actually attend law school while I worked full time. Uh, and studied for and passed the bar. So I would work Monday through Friday and I would do law school on Saturday and Sunday. And I did that for three years um, to try to, to, to try to accomplish that goal. But for me, it was really taking the perspective of what were the benefits that I were going, I was going to gain from that formal education that I could then apply to my work. Cause I'm not a practicing lawyer. If you think about it in my role, now. <laughs> but, but I would say the, the capability to translate the U.S. law, which is often very gray, it's not really as black and white as people would, would expect, that ability to translate that into uh, a logical argument or a, you know, a, a, an opinion and then build a plan around uh, around that. Those types of skills translate into data. And so this, again, I think opens up if people start to think about what are those translatable skills, what are those competencies that they have, they might not be a strict sort of data role today, but they can open up all sorts of new and, and viewpoints in, into a problem or to, into a system. I probably rely on my negotiation skills from law school today, just as much as I did going through, uh, going through school. 
Exactly for that reason. But for me, it, it has been a, a constant. I want to continue to learn. I want to build on those skill sets and competencies. Despite the fact that I owned operations and engineering, I went to Stanford and attended classes on product management because I wanted to understand what were my people doing if I was going to ask them to leverage data to change a process? Did I understand how their role worked enough to apply it? I think to your question on how do you balance it, I I live out of Outlook. Today, even to this day, I have time set aside for go on a bike ride, take a shower, right? And everything is scheduled in in Outlook um, because you have to prioritize the things that matter to you. And and if it matters to you to learn a new skill set or if it matters to you to get your exercise in or it matters, um, you know, for these certain things, you have to make time for it and prioritize yourself to make that happen. This is a this is a very great tip, and I have heard before. You know the benefits of putting that time in your calendar. Uh, an issue I've had is if I put it in the calendar, sometimes not everybody respects that, and sometimes there are priorities. And I guess, well, I don't know if for you it's easier because you're much more senior <laughs> than than I am. But how do you actually? get people to understand that this is the time I've put in for my cycling because you're actually doing three uh, triathlon aren't you? So I, I am I'm training for an that. Ironman mm-hmm. right now so that's taking up a lot of time <laughs> a lot of time as well yeah I would love to say that I've always gotten it right but but absolutely all it takes is one one thing right a, a parent gets sick or a sibling needs your help or a child uh, you know needs something from school So best laid plans, right? So also, I guess my second word of advice or my second tip would be uh, be gracious to yourself, right? It's not always going to go the way that you plan. So my calendar still gets blown up. It, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, with with tenure, tenure or seniority. So again, be able to forgive yourself if something happens and it didn't work out exactly. But But as much as you can sort of put yourself first, you're going to be a better employee overall. You're going to be a better partner. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better dog or cat mom, right? Like you're going to be a better person when you're able to sort of prioritize those things and and realize that things will shift and change and that's okay. And how can you accommodate? Um, So just make sure that you take care of yourself. I love that. And uh, so if someone would like to really introduce continuous learning in their their career and in their life, where would you suggest that, that they start? Yeah, I think for me, it's always started with on the job training, like or or, uh, networking, like, is there somebody else that has a skill or a competency that you really admire, uh, or or that you've observed them demonstrating in uh, some some sort of either social or formal work setting? Uh, and, And can you make that connection and start to learn from them? I think as you then start to define different aspects or attributes when you start to build out your career plan and progression, you'll start to identify some more formal training opportunities. And really, what are those things that are going to build those skill sets? Uh, so, so for me, when I decided that I wanted to get more into leadership, I needed sort of those skills that a lawyer has. So despite the fact that I was never going to practice law, uh, you know, I knew I, I wanted the, the, cap- the executive presence. Can I speak to a judge, which is the same as speaking to a CIO or, or a CEO? Can I uh, do negotiation between 
disparate opinions, which I would argue everybody does in any job that they have is trying to collaborate across diverse views and opinions, which is great. That's exactly what we want. But figuring out strategies to bring everybody collectively along on that journey. Uh, So again, I was never going to be a practicing lawyer, but I knew that each of those skills and competencies that I would do through that formal training would would make me a better employee, a better person, a better leader uh, for my organization. So so make sure you have a balance, I think, right? You'll you'll definitely identify formal training opportunities, but don't uh, don't shy away from those informal ones that you can create in your current construct uh, or your current job or your current uh, extracurricular activities that then require less of your time balance because you can just integrate them into what you're already doing. Yeah. And I like the fact that, you know, you're mentioning these skills that someone from your network might have and you you admire. I I started a few months ago implementing something called Curious Career Conversations that I borrowed from the Squiggly Career podcast. And I find it really great. So it's just, you know, you have a conversation with someone and you're like, oh, what you're doing sounds interesting. Let's book half an hour, talk about that skill that you have and then really learning from that. And, and then after, if you get more curious about the topic, you can, you can find more um, about it. I, I love that. And I really admire how dedicated you are to, to learning. I'm not sure I would, I would be brave enough to go back to formal education to, to grasp a, a skill. This is very impressive. To close this episode, can I ask you if you could share with us something that you read or listen to or even watch that helps you in your career development and personal development? Uh, yeah, I think you referred to it earlier, right? Everything is just moving so fast. Like technology is just shifting super quickly. Uh, I think for me, I, I try to listen to podcasts like this one. I try to uh, connect into the ecosystem. Women in Data has a great sort of uh, variety of information. I think we're seeing more and more, particularly in data, things being created that help you uh, expand your knowledge in different sort of topics. So I try to ver- make a variety. I'm, I'm rereading Invisible Women, uh, which is a great book about gender bias and data sets. Yeah, listening to lots of podcasts uh, while I ride the bike, right? So trying to, again, to to balance, do that time balance. So find the thing that works for you. Find the thing that you can make time for. uh, And and those are the the most uh, uh, rewarding opportunities to continue to learn. So how are you listening to podcasts while cycling? Because this is something I would love to do that. I am terrified. <laughs> yeah, just one headphone. Make sure you leave one off so okay. you can hear the traffic. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will try that out. I've seen also people having, um, is it bone conducting? I just bought a spans? set of those, yeah, to try on my next run. So we'll see. We'll see okay, you will work. have to I'll tell me how it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Robin. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you again so much, Karen. Uh, Enjoyable conversation and, and I wish you the best. Thank you for listening to the Women in Data podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new guest. Until then, if you have two minutes, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review as it helps not only to make the podcast more visible, but also to enhance the content. If you don't want to miss the next episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are also on LinkedIn. And if you wish to, you can even register to the community for free. All you have to do is head to womenindata.co.uk. Have a great day.